Welcome to On Meaning. I'm Eugene Leventhal. This week I got to interview Dr. Pneet Russo-Netzer, who is a researcher and lecturer who is the head of the academic training program for logotherapy in Israel, the co-developer and co-instructor of the Mindfulness-Based Meaning Program, and a researcher at the University of Haifa. Dr. Russo-Netzer's work looks at meaning and its intersection with topics such as spirituality, resilience, well-being, and synchronicity. I really enjoyed the conversation and the fact that we kind of came back a few times to the the journey-like nature of the question of meaning in the first place, whether it's in the context of meaning specifically or, I think, self-development more broadly, just the importance of seeing these things as a lifelong journey, as something we you know, commit to go on and explore as opposed to, you know, figure out once and we're, we're done and we can just move on. So I very much appreciated that. And so without further ado, here's the interview with Dr. Panit Russo-Netzer. All right, well, thank you so much for joining us. To get the conversation started, do you mind just mentioning your name and title? Yeah, um, I'm Dr. Panit Russo-Netzer. I'm a senior lecturer, a researcher, and um, the head of the education department at Ahmed Academic College, and also the head of the Compass Institute for the Study and Application of Meaning in Life, and the head of the academic training program for logotherapy, which is meaning-oriented psychotherapy at uh, Tel Aviv University. Yeah, thank you. And I mean, the question of meaning is such a complicated one in its own right. To start this discussion and to, to really slowly start unpacking it. Do you mind mentioning some different ways that people define or experience meaning? When I think of meaning, I think about life itself. <laughs> There's a quote I really like by Oscar Wilde, and he said, to live is the rarest thing in the world. Most people exist, that is all. And I've always wondered, when do we really live, not just exist? What's the difference between merely existing, surviving, functioning, and living life to the fullest? And I think meaning is that secret, sometimes hidden ingredient that makes life worth living. I think it fills us with passion and vitality, and it's connected to that which will, is really, you know, matters to us. So I think although the search for meaning is something which is fundamentally and a human motivation, people experience that sometimes differently throughout their lifetime uh, in different circumstances. But essentially, if we're trying to define it, meaning can serve as some kind of a lighthouse that sheds light on our life experiences and, and connect the dots between our life events. And I really like the definition that is now accepted as an integrative definition suggested by uh, Martella and Steger and also by George and Park. And uh, I think it's pretty useful theoretically and empirically. And they suggest that meaning is comprised of three uh, broad dimensions. The, the first one is about comprehension, which means which is more the cognitive component, which means that it's our ability to understand and make sense of our life experiences and to weave them into something which is coherent. And the second one is the purpose, which is the motivational component. It's the degree to which we feel directed and motivated by valued life goals or purposes. And the third one, which is uh, sometimes the most elusive one, 
it's the mattering or and significance. It's the feeling that our existence matters. It's the feeling that we are significant and valued, that we're not transparent. And I think overall, meaning can perhaps seen as some kind of organizing force to life. I very much appreciate that the three prong definition from um I always forget the the full list of authors on that one. Yeah. But with Steger and others. And I mean that starting point of having the the purpose, the comprehension, the meaning. On the one hand, I, I guess before even digging into the specific elements around those or some of your other research as it relates to meaning, are there any specific benefits that are clearly seen for people who seem to be defining these, you know, have some kind of answers to those three points? Is there a benefit from an individual standpoint of, you know, is my experience different if I have meaning versus someone who doesn't? Is there any reason to believe that kind of having those kind of definitions will give someone a, a happier or any kind of quantifiably different kind of experience than someone who doesn't? Yeah, so yeah, research consistently shows that meaning serves as a central resource for resilience and also for coping with uncertainty. Uh, so meaning has been found to be, on the one hand, contributing to our human flourishing, including longevity, as well as to function as a coping mechanism to adjustment in life adversity and suffering. For example, people high in meaning in life report more positive future orientations, hope and optimism. They enjoy their work more. They also appear to cope better with life challenges and they demonstrate less avoidance uh, coping and more emotion-focused coping, as well as less depression and vulnerability to psychopathology. And higher levels of meaning were also found to be longitudinally associated with healthier life choices and preventive behaviors, such as physical activity among older individuals and also among young, uh, young people. You know, like youth and adolescents, it was found that having a sense of meaning contributes to their healthy identity and development and also reduced drug abuse. Because we know that a lack of meaning, on the other hand, may lead to boredom, anxiety, disengagement, existential frustration or emptiness or existential vacuum and depression, anxiety. So we know it's good to have a sense of meaning and, and, and sometimes it's a combination of all three. And also, I just want to add something that I, I tried to kind of articulate before about meaning, because I think language is a good uh, teacher about, about meaning, what meaning means for different people around the world, because uh, meaning is like language is not something that we invent, but something we find, something we discover, because to make sense of life and of language, we need to be attentive. This is something I hope we can discuss more. We need to be attentive to the intention that lies beneath our experiences, beneath spoken words or actions. It requires open-minded, open-hearted, and, and to be mindful, to connect with it, with, it, with each other, uh, with, our, with ourselves, with nature, with the world. So it's kind of a, it's a connection. I think. Yeah, and I th I, it would be great to to dig into that a little bit more because it's a, an interesting question that always forms in my mind. Aside from the you know kind of the, the easier, higher level one of oh, what, what difference does it make in the first place if someone has meaning or not? Trying to get to the well, what is it that actually gives someone meaning relative to someone who doesn't have it? I think is such an interesting point to to try to dig in on a little more. So I, I would just it would be great to hear. 
kind of, you know, you just mentioned the attentiveness or the mindfulness around it. Is meaning something that is inherently an intentional activity? Do, do you have to kind of commit yourself to a journey of exploring meaning? Or is meaning that something that can just be found and, you know, just uh, kind of uh, taken and easily applied? Or is it inherently this kind of long road of development that's that's baked into figuring out what that meaning is for someone? Yeah, I always say that the call for meaning is sometimes like a whisper and sometimes it's like a shout, you know, and if we're thinking about trauma or suffering, it's a shout. But most of the times it, it's a whisper and being mindful allows us to notice the whispers. And, and meaning is not something that's been transmitted to us, you know, from our parents, something that was meaningful to my parents or, you know, uh, different people in my uh, surroundings doesn't mean it will be meaningful to me. And we also know that from, from theories and research on meaning in work, for instance, that there's no occupation that it's meaningful in its own sake. Even if you're saving life as a, uh, someone who, you know, doing um, brain surgery or heart surgery, even, even if you do that on a daily basis, you sometimes feel your, your work is meaningless. So it's, it's most often the thing uh, that it's something that we need in, to be attentive to, to be, uh, it's something that requires active effort. For example, I always give that example. I can go back, I can return from, from work to my home and hug my child, which for, for many people, it can be a major source of meaning, but I can look behind his back to the piles of, of dishes and emails and laundry and it will be a meaningless moment. It will be just a tick in my day, just something to go through in my to-do list. And I can be mindful. I can hug him or her with an intention. And this will be a meaningful moment. Although for someone who looks from the outside, it can be the same scene. But in terms of experience, it will be a totally different one. So it's for me, meaning, discovering meaning, I always call that uncover to discover because sometimes we need to uncover uh, different identification and things we got from other people or from society to rediscover life, to rediscover that meaning that is happening right here and right now and to participate in life. Um, and, you know, Viktor Frankl has a beautiful uh, saying. He says that some people have it all, but they say no to life. And some people, even in suffering and, you know, darkest circumstances can say yes to life. And, and for me, meaning starts with saying yes to life. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, no, it's such an interesting, I mean, there, there's so many beautiful elements in that. And, you know, I, w one part that has been resonating with just kind of my own personal journey as of late is the active component of it, of the fact that even if you are lucky enough to kind of hear those whispers and have spent the time needed to, to better hear what those whispers are saying, it's still a very active and intentional pursuit from there. It's not as though, oh, I figured it out. Now I'm done. It's yeah. now, I've, now I know where the journey needs to be uh, directed towards. And that's only kind of the beginning point of a larger journey. And I feel like there's this I don't know if it's just maybe my own personal inherent laziness or whatnot, but I feel like it's a common thing where people imagine just, oh, if I just had that one internal breakthrough in thought, then, you know, like my depression, my depression is forever lifted. And it's like, if only it was that easy. But now you'll know the direction you need to go and the kind of work to put in to constantly be able to feel better and better. 
But yeah, that that element of the journey, I feel like, is one that uh, we don't always recognize the importance of. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, I I really like the way you put it because it's a lifelong journey, and sometimes we've been. I always say we either we are pushed to to search for meaning or we are pulled. And again, I'll quote Frankel. He said he calls it a restless heart because sometimes we have it all, and everything is fine. But we still feel like, you know, something ticking within. We feel that our restless heart to search for meaning. And sometimes we're being pushed to search for it. But as, as you say, it's something that it doesn't end. It's not when I'll finish this project and when I get married or when I retire, kind of a life in preparation for someday, maybe in retirement, that I'll search for meaning. I'll, uh, you know, put some time into it and reflect on life. For me, it's not a philosophical question. It's not a theological uh, question. It's something that it's, you know, it's a here and now. It's a lifelong question and it demands active uh, awareness, which we can cultivate on an almost daily basis. And so coming back to that point of, uh, of the earlier thought of, you know, what, what motivates or begins or can help inspire meaning, I know one of your general threads of research is kind of the intersection of spirituality and meaning. So it would be great, well, I guess, before even asking any specific questions there, do you mind just kind of quickly mentioning how you uh, think about that intersection of spirituality and meaning? Yeah, so that's another broad question. <laughs> uh, but if you can, uh, I think we can think about the definition of spirituality, whether within or outside institutional religions. It includes several shared dimensions, which is the existence of a transcendent uh, dimension, our relation or connection to it, and a search for ultimate meaning or ultimate questions about purpose and the meaning of life. I think spirituality has so many links to meaning, of course, but it mostly aims at the meaning of life, which can be, you know, it come kind of um, a complement the meaning in life, which is moment by moment, kind of uh, the, the meaning of the moment process. So it sometimes uh, it echoes it and it's something more kind of a, of a broader sense. And, and logotherapy uh, kind of it's, it has a pioneering emphasis on the largely neglected spiritual dimension of the core of human existence as, as some kind of integrative view of human condition. Uh, in, Frankel is known as, as since um, William James was the first to go beyond the physical and psychological concerns, such as rise and environment, to include uh, the noetic dimension. He called the spiritual the noetic di- dimension, which is uh, the con- considered the healthy core. And it includes qualities such as self-distancing, self-transcendence, humor, values, imagination, love, gratitude. And in contrast to the two di- to the other two dimensions, which are more reactive and sometimes automatic, they are closed systems. The noetic dimension, the spiritual dimensions, uh, it's it's open, it's free. This is where our will to meaning and our freedom of choice lie. And he has a beautiful saying. He says that our spirit can never become sick; it can only be buried alive. I think it's a, it's really beautiful where. We can sometimes see people who, you know, that their inner spark is is dead sometimes. And and here I, maybe I'll, I'll mention very briefly uh, a study that we've conducted, uh, which I see as some kind of uh, integration between spirituality and meaning. 
this is a study I conducted with Dr. Tamara Isaacson and my graduate students about uh, synchronicity experiences. Because we know, as I mentioned before, that one of the ingredients of meaning is coherence, right? We need our life to make sense. From a young age, children are asking why. They want to understand themselves and the world to make sense. And, and you know, we see that people are striving to find order in life. They want to, to find structure. And we wanted to, uh, to explore how people make sense of a random and unexpected information and events in everyday life. So uh, synchronicity was defined by Jung, Carl Jung, as a meaningful coincidence which appears between a mental state. It can be a thought, a dream, a feeling, and an event occurring in the external world. A psychologically meaningful connection between an inner event and an outer reality, which occurs simultaneously and not in a causal way. And we, we have a lot of data about that from uh, different cases within the analytical uh, tradition. But outside of therapeutic settings, we don't have enough understanding of how people experience that on a daily basis and how people make sense of that. Of that. Although, and I can ask you maybe if you have experienced any unexplained coincidence that held a special meaning for you. Maybe. Yes, very much so. I feel like I am I am currently going through a period of life where uh, the amount of synchronicity experienced feels like it's it's going through a general exponential curve as opposed to a regular one, which feels very unusual and exciting. And there's a lot of uncertainty and change. But uh, yeah, I, I am feeling tremendously fortunate to be experiencing that. And I personally, I think synchronicity is one of those elusive things where it's like if people talk about like the flow state for work or for, you know, just a short experience, I feel like synchronicity is flow state on the life level where yeah. it's just a, like when you're able to be more mindful and present and your goals and ambitions are aligning with, you know, those whispers of meaning that you've been hearing yeah, I have. I mean, I, I can't <laughs> wait to hear from you about, uh, you know, people who actually explore this from a research perspective. But synchronicity is personally, I find one of the most fascinating things that when I feel like I'm having more of it, I feel like I'm doing things right in my life. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, wow. I love that. Yeah. So we know that it's um, and of course, research so that too, that we we have a lot of we have high estimated frequency of its occurrence among non-clinical populations, but we don't have any systematic exploration of that. And as you mentioned, it's something that, you know, it's, it's a feeling that you're being directed in life. It's a feeling that, uh, that you're doing something right, that you're listening to the whispers. And, and you know, Jung has, uh, he has a saying that synchronicity is an ever-present reality for those who have eyes to see. And, and I think it's really beautiful because it kind of uh, combines the two the ingredients that we mentioned before. It's like there's the reality and the, that, that's the person who experienced that, that and, and, and is mindful to it. And, and so we wanted to explore that bottom up. So we wanted to understand phenomenologically how people experience that and what can we learn from that. So we found, I will do it very, in a very brief manner, but of course, I'll be happy to send to you and other people the, the study that was published. Uh, we found a spiral process that we call the REM, which uh, the R represents the receptiveness 
which is a precondition that we identify. It involves attentiveness, it involves curiosity, flexibility, attunement to novel experiences, which leads to openness to new opportunities, which meets the E. The E is an evo emotion evoking experience. It can be a physical signs from, goose, from goosebumps, yeah, to becoming extremely ill or significant messages from songs. It can be sometimes that you open your radio in the car and there's a message for you or a sign uh, when you drive by and there's a sign on a grocery store or um, truck. And, and it can be also in nature or social encounters and interactions. But what identifies them is that they are always in proper timing, they are memorable, and they have emotional intensity. This is why they capture their, our attention. And the M ingredient is the meaning detecting. So it's not enough to be open. It's not enough that our openness kind of um, encounters reality or emotion evoking experience, but also we are, those people who are experienced or they have synchronicity awareness connect the coincidental events to their personal narratives and history. So participants, like you mentioned, they felt that their life were guided and directed in a way that unfolded as a journey with yet unforeseen paths and this experience related to positive outcomes. And it's something really interesting to say that religious people interpret that uh, differently. They inter interpreted that as, as a sign, as God's providence, whereas for secular people, uh, it's, it's more like um, uh, their own agency and reflection rather than being centered on a higher power. But all of them mention these positive outcomes of feeling directed, of finding coherence to life, uh, being feeling uh, stable in their choices, and, and sometimes deriving new purpose and excitement about life. And we're currently developing and validating a questionnaire, first of its kind, based on these insights from the bottom up, and to see its relations to well-being variables and personality variables, and it's uh, in a very kind of uh, uh, advanced um, steps of quantitative study. And what I found interesting is this, this dynamic cycle, which emerged from the study, may enhance an orientation to some kind of a learned meaning, meaningfulness. Like we have learned optimism, we can also develop learned meaningfulness rather than ignoring or rejecting unexpected triggers in our reality. And I think it's something that when you open your eyes to see and you detect the meaning within it for yourself and it becomes something that, you know, kind of feeds itself in some kind of dynamics, okay? Yeah. That also makes me think about how much of a of a relative aspect there is to the concept of synchronicity in the sense of for one person that can just be, you know, more along the lines of, say, coincidences in the day to day of, oh, you know, the song came up. I read the word on a sign at the right time versus, I guess, on a more abstract dimension where things are just working out and flowing in such a way where it just feels like I'm I'm headed on that right path. And that, that, that just makes me also think of how much is there the, I guess, the aspect of how much can synchronicity be a 
false false justification illusion where I am seeing the things that I want to see to justify the set of choices that I've made mm-hmm. versus truly being receptive. And maybe that receptivity is that that first thing of, I don't know where I need to head. I just know I'm going somewhere and things keep working out in a way that are in line with me heading where I think I'm going. Yeah. I guess maybe it's even that element of control, right? I don't, I don't know. Have, have you, has there been any specific kind of difference there? Is kind of the difference I'm alluding to make sense? Yeah, we find it's a very complex idea. I think synchronicity. Some people, for some people, it was it wasn't always a positive experience. Sometimes it's a negative experience. I need to make a choice. I need to make a decision, and and the universe saying no. <laughs> I mean, it can be illness. It can be falling down the stairs. It can be uh, thinking about someone and then receiving bad bad news. It can be all sorts of. We had a very uh, broad uh, spectrum of of experiences. But I think uh, the central part is being open to the experience and being attentive and not just searching, as you mentioned, what, we, what I want to hear. But in the quantitative study that we are working on now, we found that, that people who are search, searching for meaning and they're open to, uh, because it's a two-scale questionnaire. The first one is about being open and, and paying attention to events. And the second one is about the meaning detecting. Then it contributes to um, a host of uh, well-being variables, but it's also connected to anxiety, which is very interesting. Because, and we know that from research on meaning too, because if you're over, uh, you know, searching for meaning and over-interpreting everything, everything is because sometimes the cigar is just a cigar, right? Doesn't have to have any other additional layers of meaning then it becomes rumination. Then it becomes something that can harm, and and it, beca- it can even become some kind of psychosis, or because you over, right? You're you're hardly living. You're over interpreting everything that happens. So there needs to be kind of, um, I would say, a golden uh, kind of a golden line within them. It's something in the middle way not too much and not too little because people who ignore that who say ah oh, it's just statistics it just you know uh they they're not attentive and open to the world but at the same time too much of everything can be harmful yeah and i guess that that brings us back to the the journey aspect that we were talking about earlier because it's a, another fun aspect about all of these wonderfully complex topics that we're talking about is that Whenever you start dissecting it, you're really dissecting a temporal slice. You're just looking at it at a given point in time. 10 minutes later or 10 minutes earlier, you were at a different point of your journey than you are now, and you might need to adjust and think of it differently. So it's also interesting to think, especially when it comes to the anxiety-inducing aspect of all of these things, how much can things like depression or anxiety, if you are mindful and committed to the journey aspect of this, that there isn't a one-time solution, how much can those kinds of uh, things actually be radars from an experiential sense that I might actually be knocking myself further off path as opposed to staying you know, in line with the things that work well with me and are maybe more in line with that, you know, the, the, the path that might be laid out if I'm listening to the whispers, if that makes sense and following what my, my unique individual meaning can be. And I know in, in just digging deeper into existential psychotherapy in general, thinking of how to repurpose things 
such as depression and anxiety, which I guess, especially at least in traditional Western views, can just be very, you know, binarily, you're either fixed or you're broken. And that's just, in my opinion, not a useful paradigm to think about it. But yeah, just how much, how much for synchronicity itself is that an element that you need to think of across time and not just get caught up in the individual experience of any single thing? Because like you're saying, you can get lost in the rumination as opposed to thinking, how much does this experience feed back to the journey that is my life? And I'm trying to make coherence on a journey level, not just have coherence on a single experience level. I think we can learn a lot, a lot from the um, different case studies within the therapeutic uh, settings because we have a lot of ways uh, of seeing that when um, a therapist is open to synchronicity experiences, it can really lead to a breakthrough in, in the therapy session because it, it helps people bring themselves as the whole person and also to see how it connects to their life journey in a broader sense. And this is something we also found when we interviewed uh, very in-depth interviews with people. We found it's not something that it's um, disconnected from the, their life journey. They, they see it, and it sometimes can be very small experiences. It doesn't have to be uh, a near life experience or you know, kind of a peak experience. It doesn't have to be the big wows. It's sometimes very small, ordinary experiences that you can view them in different way. And then you can see how it kind of um, weave into your whole life journey in a way that you feel that, that you're being directed. Maybe it's, you know, for this time being, it doesn't have to be for life because it's not something you find and that's it, the end of the journey. It's something that keep on, keeps on hold. It's like, you know, it's like running water. It's not stagnant. It's not something that it's fixed. But uh, what we also see in, um, in trying to see it more quantitatively, which allows us to think in a more causal way, we see uh, that there are uh, ways of people who are more, as I mentioned, search for meaning and open. And they have the um, one of the big five variables is openness to experience, for instance. And they're more grateful for life and all of that. They're, they are more prone to experience that and to detect meaning, which I think the most uh, important ingredient here is about detecting meaning that lies like um, meaning hints. In, in logotherapy, we have the, an idea of meaning clues. When I listen to a client, to a patient, uh, to a person, I always try to listen to what lies beneath their spoken words. Uh, sometimes it's a cry. Sometimes it's not just what wakes me up in the morning. Sometimes it's what keeps me up at night, what makes me angry, what makes me frustrated. Beyond or beneath the symptoms, there's a, a meaning clues or meaning hints. And this, this, goes to, uh, this is the same for, for synchronicity. Synchronicity is a trigger. But if we explore meaning, if we try to connect that to our life narratives and history, and, and to see our life's choices or purposes for the future, it doesn't matter or the way we live in the here and now, then it adds value. And then it's not something that I'm kind of uh, locked within the cycle. And I have a bit of a, of a technical question, if you don't mind. How, when you started the process of trying to, or going through the process of quantifying something, which seems, at least on the surface, very much unquantifiable, 
Do you mind just sharing what that process is actually like? Uh, how do you think about a, a very elusive concept and go to actually studying it properly, <laughs> studying it through evidence and not just through, you know, just written theory? Yeah, I think I think we can say that on, on anything in social sciences. How do you explore love? How do you explore happiness? How do you explore meaning? Right? Everything is it's more kind of ideas, uh, fluffy or <laughs> ideas uh, rather than a very concrete, objective reality. Uh, the same goes for spirituality, for instance. So I I I think in essence we we're not trying to identify uh, an objective truth. Is there a God? Is there a love? Do you really love your, your spouse or your, your pet or your child? We want to, ex to explore what it does to people, how people experience that, what are the outcomes, how we can uh, trigger more of that. Uh, and I think, uh, and, and yes, we break down phenomenon into different parts and trying to explore that in different ways. But I think my uh, technique, as you mentioned, or my uh, method is always, or most of the time, it's, I always start bottom up. I always want to understand how it kind of um, behaves phenomenologically. What is the essence or the lived experience? I think most of the existential thought, it's more like a phenomenological uh, base. Because I want to see how people, different people, experience that and what it means. This experience, not top down from theory to humans, but to explore that bottom up. And then we can better understand the variable. And then we can develop uh, questionnaires and interventions and control trials or whatever. But we cannot kind of uh, conduct uh, research based on theoretical ideas rather than really to see how people experience that. Because just, you know, just circling five out of seven liquid scale doesn't mean anything. I want to understand how it feels like. What does it mean to feel that way? For me and for you, success or love or meaning is, is a totally different quality. So I want to understand what it means to you to get as close as I can to people's you know, inner world and to see the things which we have in common and what kind of, uh, I, and what we can learn from that in order to bring into the next, next yeah. step. And just a, as a as a quick definition, in case any listeners aren't aware, the Likert scales. If you ever done the just how how did that feel on a one to five, one to three, one to whatever scale? That that's just the Likert scales. But so a follow up question there. So is it fair to say that it starts off with just kind of the human exploration? I'm assuming interviews, discussions with people to just get kind of data in the form of just like transcripts of conversation. And then you do some kind of textual analysis to figure out trends. And is that how you got to those three dimension points where it was the openness, the emotion? Is that the process that it, it took there or is it not as straightforward? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's more complex then because we have so many uh, ways of, of kind of doing uh, data analysis, especially qualitative uh, methods. But in general sense, yeah, we have in-depth interviews, uh, three hours or two and a half hour, I mean, trying to really understand the phenomena from different directions. And then we have transcripts of the, the way it's been uh, expressed and experienced word to word verbatim. And then we analyze the data. For example, the flow, you mentioned flow, Chiksen Mihai idea of flow. 
it started from a qualitative research. He interviewed people to understand, and then he he kind of identified different elements that that were shared by different people, whether they're in sport or science or or whatever. Uh, the same goes for, for post-traumatic growth. The five elements of post-traumatic growth (PTG) were identified through qualitative study, and then they developed questionnaire based on that. And there are many different examples of how we kind of are trying to understand a topic or a phenomena that, as you mentioned, is something that needs more exploration because it's not straightforward. And then once we understand that, then we can go to something that it's more quantifiable. And I can just give you a very brief idea, uh, example of that. When we developed the questionnaire for children, which is the first of its kind, uh, elementary school children, how they experience meaning, it was really hard because most of the research, I would say almost all of the research on meaning is focused on adults. We don't, we don't have measures from young, for young children, although we know that they search for meaning from a young age, they're asking the why question from about four-year-olds or three-year-olds, right? But there was no assessment tool for that. And, and many, you know, many researchers believe that it's because they don't have the cognitive capabilities to ask meaning questions and to understand meaning questions. But the more we dig into it, the more we realize that we were asking the wrong questions. We need to be sensitive to the way children are experienced meaning. They don't understand the word meaning, but they do understand what matters to them, what's significant in their life, for example. So we did kind of a focus groups with children to understand what they mean when they speak about meaning. And then we developed the questionnaire and we found that, for instance, uh, that having a sense of meaning contributes to their well-being and functioning and, and all of that. So we just a very brief example to show that we need to be sensitive to how people experience that rather than theory and models. Absolutely. No, and I appreciate you providing those examples. And I want to do a, a whole separate exploration of just, you know, how do people get to the meaning questionnaires and the evolution of those over time? And I believe the whole big five system came up from more uh, from more uh, studies on folks as opposed to just pre predefining and then going to look for the evidence after that. So, yeah, I, I appreciate you you entertaining that little tangent there. Uh, but to bring it back to the conversation we were having before we got more into the methods, is there in the in the research, have you found any links between spirituality and synchronicity or are those just kind of two separate things altogether? Yeah, I think uh, some of them mentioned, you know, self-transcendence experiences and, and feeling that they're a part of the a greater scam of things. And as I mentioned, for religious people, it was more emphasized. And for secular people, it was more like a sense of being directed, of, of feeling uh, that they, they kind of been in a dialogue with life. But I think, yeah, I think there are many links between spirituality, the, the meaning of life in terms of being a feeling interconnected to life and to everything in it, and the meaning in life, which is a moment by moment, a choice to, to see the meaning potential that lies there. Yeah, so I think we also, yeah, we found some um, connections with spirituality and also spiritual experiences. But as I mentioned, it's not just about the big spiritual or transcendent experiences. It can also be in the very ordinary day-to-day -day experiences and unexpected experiences. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's always interesting to think of the, the, the different kind of dimensions of how it can be the smallest thing or kind of the biggest, most abstract. But yeah, the, the interesting element of how meaning can be present across that entire spectrum of dimensions. So uh, given our time together, I do want to change tracks a little bit to make sure to touch on some of the research that you've done. And I believe, I've, I forgot if it's technically a forthcoming paper, if it's already out, uh, but there is work happening uh, and you're doing research around exploration of meaning and post-traumatic growth, I believe specifically in the context of the pandemic. So I was just wondering if you think there's something unique about the idea of collective shared trauma and that if we're all kind of experiencing a version of a challenge together, does that mean we have, we can all do collective meaning learning together? Uh, or is that a bad question to be asking in the first place? And there's a totally different way one should be thinking of meaning in the context of, of, you know, growth post challenging experiences. Hmm. Um, interesting. Uh, I don't know. I think it's a really, um, I would say a fascinating point in history where we all as humans uh, faced uh, our limitations uh, in many ways. So I, I hope, I don't know, because then the world is starting to, you know, to get back to normal again. So I'm not, I'm not sure we use this opportunity to recalculate, you know, our, our, our kind of uh, uh, new directions and meaning as, as a human species. But I think it's an opportunity. We know that trauma exposes us to our vulnerability and to the limitations of our previously held world assumptions. And it kind of, uh, you know, these assumptions kind of provides us sometimes uh, in a very, I would say, even uh, in illusion of control, of meaning, of self-esteem. And, and sometimes trauma shatters us. And uh, is, so sometimes collective trauma is considered a crisis of meaning because it threatens all three kind of a components of meaning that we mentioned before. It stabilizes people meaning systems in terms of coherence. There's no orders, there's uncertainty. We don't know how to make sense of what happened. In terms of our purposes, we have, uh, we had plans. We wanted to, you know, travel. We wanted, we had big, right? Big goals and big, uh, big uh, ideas. And then everything went to, <laughs> right? And, and in terms of mattering and significance in the world. So, so trauma kind of disrupts our global sense of meaning by exposing us to the darker side of human nature. Uh, Jasper's called that boundary experiences because we kind of are kind of are exposed to our boundaries or limitations. But it also triggers existential questions that people who haven't been asking these kind of questions before, I see a massive interest in meaning lately. People are asking meaning questions. People are having spiritual struggles. And this can generate a search for meaning. This can generate uh, a post-traumatic growth. Uh, I, was, uh, I was involved in a big uh, study on the World Trade Center, September 11, uh, 15 years later. And when we see those people 15 years later, we also see post-traumatic uh, post growth. We also see hope. We see meaning. Uh, but sometimes we don't kind of, uh, we don't see through these kind of lenses but uh, how can we make sense of what happened? And I think, I think Viktor Frankl is a very good example of that, of how we can, in his world, turn a suffering, a personal suffering, into a human triumph or human achievement. 
and also the idea that we can find meaning in any circumstance because life is unconditionally meaningful. It depends on us to see that and to make sense of it. And he, he has a beautiful uh, suggestion uh, for a radical shift from the view, what can I expect from life to what does life expect from me? It's our task to discern the meaning which relates to us in a particular situation. And I also like the idea that he takes the word responsibility and he breaks it down into response ability because between stimulus and response, between what happens to us and how we choose to react to it, to it lies our, our freedom of choice. So, and, and sometimes it's about the narrative. Sometimes, you know, we know that pain is inevitable, but sometimes suffering is our own story or relationship with what happens to us. And I see that in, in my research over and over again, how people sometimes it's a, a radical choice of how to turn uh, what uh, some of our, my research is about transformative life experiences, both trauma and positive ones. And it's sometimes it's a very, I call it situational freedom because it's, it's sometimes a very narrow freedom, but it's, it's a freedom to make a choice. Yeah, and I mean, Viktor Frankl's work in general, uh, I, I know his book, Man's Search for Meaning, was one of the the first things that I read 10, 12-ish years ago, and that, that really sent me down this more intentional journey in the first place. And I mean, I, can, I know I can just personally relate in terms of dealing with my own kind of chronic depression and chronic uh, stomach issues and whatnot, and learning how to take an appropriate frame mindset and frame of mind towards dealing with certain scenarios, especially if they're perpetual issues, uh, can, can fundamentally change how you're experiencing life. And yeah, you know, sort of, uh, of course there's differences of things that you're forced to go through or things that people, you know, are challenges they kind of foist upon themselves. But, um, nonetheless, just, it shows how much power there is in our mindset and our ability to, to latch on to hope regardless of what's happening around. And that, yeah, it, it, it's just such a powerful reminder of the fact that no matter what, we can choose to see life that way. Uh, and the fact that we have that choice is in of itself pretty powerful. I know Edith Eager's book, The Choice, I think also is uh, very similar a, a, along those lines. And to what you were saying, you know, to take a step back, I guess what you were saying about the meaning crisis and everything, I know John Verveke even has a series on the meaning crisis. And, you know, like, I, I wonder how much are we actually going through a time where, you know, shared coherence is, is on shakier ground than it was before. And whether it's politically, whether it's more technology and, you know, just more information out there. But it's interesting to think how the societal track, the technological development and our mental health are all kind of experiencing separate challenges these days. And I feel like there's a, a bunch of different directions I can take follow-up questions and I just want to be respectful that we only have about five-ish minutes left. And I just mentioned that time flew. You mentioned flow, so it was <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, it's, I'm always happy when that's the feeling in these conversations. But I did want to just make sure to to touch on two more questions, one of which is, the fact that you mentioned in your in your intro, you're you're the co-developer and uh, and an instructor, co-instructor of the mindfulness-based meaning program. So, do you mind just briefly mentioning what this program is about? Yeah, just very briefly. This program I developed together with uh, Dr. Itai Ibtan, which is the the first comprehensive research-based program that brings together the two worlds of meaning and mindfulness. 
together in a practical and experiential uh, way. Uh, the program is a journey of, of uh, eight sessions where we use mindfulness as a spotlight that sheds light on our past meaningful moments and life stories, the present experience of meaning in the here and now, and potential purpose in the future, as well as uh, spiritual meaning of self-transcendence and interconnectedness. And, and I think we need more of that because as we mentioned before, in a, in a broader sense, uh, the call for meaning is sometimes a whisper and we miss that whisper sometimes. We, sometimes we go to therapy to identify that. Sometimes we need to be pushed by life. But being mi mindful helps us to, to figure out our why, to be in touch with life, to participate in life more. And, and we're now trying to understand that through research. We hardly have any theoretical and empirical studies on the two worlds together, although for me, it's a natural combination. I think it's, it's, it's a must. It's a precondition for meaning to be mindful. And we're just uh, now trying to unpack that in research and, and, and theory to understand why uh, they're kind of uh, nurturing each other. So I think it's something that um, we need to pay attention more, whether it is, you know, as part of the program, whether it is in our daily basis, it can be uh, sometimes just, you know, writing down at the end of the day or the beginning of the day, meaning hints that you've noticed. It sometimes can be, you know, sharing a story, synchronicity or whatever you. It can be uh, sometimes be trying to kind of uh, take a moment to reflect on your life choices, on, on values, and to be able to make sense of it and, or your purpose. It can be, so being mindful and being in kind of um, relationship with what happens to us enables us to to find more meaning in the past, present, and future. Yeah, and there we'll we'll have to save the for uh, another day. But I, I have so many questions I, I wanted to follow up on in terms of mindfulness and how that relates to some of these components. But uh, unfortunately, as you mentioned, the, the the hour flew by. But I did just want to make sure to give you the chance to just to see, did, is there anything from your overall work uh, or anything that you would want to touch on that we just didn't have a chance to get into the conversation? Yeah, I just uh, wanted to uh, maybe close with, um, I would just mention two um, broad pathways that I think we need to be explored more in the field of, of meaning. One is children and adolescents processes of meaning in life, which are not the same as adults. The other one is culture. I think we're very centered in on individuals rather than, you know, uh, our cultures. And I want to end with uh, my uh, research on prioritizing meaning, because I think it's something that is very practical for people who are listening to us, hopefully. And I, I believe that we can learn a lot from the way individuals invest their limited time and energy in everyday life, the way we kind of behave in life. And we can learn a lot from their chosen activities and behaviors about their values and what they find important and meaningful. And, you know, in my work, I often uh, see a gap between intention and action. People know what, you know, what their sources of meaning in life, but they are not acting upon it. You know, I can sometimes uh, hear people who say children are the most important things in my life, but I see them when they're already asleep. So I'm not spending time with them. I'm not acting on my values. And um, what I wanted to understand that if we're translating our values into action, is it crucial to experience more meaning? 
Because the question of meaning, as we mentioned earlier, it's not something abstract or general or philosophical question, but it's something which is concrete. It has to do with our priorities, with our choices, with the way we constantly and consciously uh, make regarding our time and, and energy resources. So in my research, I, I wanted to explore that and I developed a questionnaire. I won't go into details about prioritizing meaning, which essentially means how do I organize my day? The manner in which I organize my daily uh, structure or weekly in terms of activities, interactions. And, and the answer is yes. Um, people who prioritize meaning on a daily basis experience more satisfaction with life, more happiness, more positive emotions, more career and more gratitude and meaning in life, and, and less anxiety and depression. And in addition, people who are searching for meaning have a higher sense of meaning and well-being when they're actually prioritizing meaning. So it goes back to what we've discussed before. Uh, maybe the, the gap between intention when I'm hyper kind of a searching for meaning, but I'm not doing anything about that, that may be ruminative. But if I'm acting on my values or my sources of meaning, it's not just hoping that meaning will fall on me or I will climb on a mountain and it will appear, you know, some, someone will give me the answer or someday I will figure out, the, you know, the answer. It's taking ownership on cultivating and experiencing meaningful life on a day-to-day basis. So what I want to suggest to people who are hearing us, that as you plan your days, you can choose to schedule activities that are in alignment with the things that matter to you, that hold value to you. Which meaningful activities or interaction, interaction sorry, should you prioritize in the next 24 hours? Which activities do you want or need to be uh, to remove or modify in order to kind of uh, align that with your meaning resources or sources? How can you use a to-do list to add more meaning to your life? So I think we build our meaning and well-being through the things we repeatedly do every day. It doesn't just happen to us. So this is, I think, the idea I want to leave our listeners with. I think that's such a such a beautiful note to end on. And I love how actionable that is because so many times these conversations can feel very intangible at the end. And I know I can just personally say it's still, you know, morning in, in, in my time zone when we're recording this. And, you know, when I make time for these kinds of conversations, I have a very different kind of day that follows than the days that I don't. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for, for the research that you do and for taking the time to to come on and share that with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That's lovely. Thanks for taking the time to tune in today. On Meaning is created by me, Eugene Leventhal. You can reach out at onmeaningpod, P-O-D, at gmail.com, or you can find me with the handle of onmeaningpod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for now. Special thanks goes out to Michael Butler, who has been lending a helping hand with some things as I've been getting the podcast started. You can also check out our website, onmeaningpod.com, to learn more information about the podcast or any events that we'll be putting out. Until next time, be well and speak soon.